the Rathbone's Inspired Minds podcast series. Hello and welcome to the Rathbone's Inspired Minds podcast series. I'm Daniel Norcross. In each episode, acclaimed writers, scientists and entrepreneurs reveal what inspires them. And today, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the Professor of Global History at Oxford University, a man who works on the history and politics of the Mediterranean, Russia, the Middle East, Persia, Iran, Central Asia, China and beyond. His groundbreaking Silk Roads has sold more than 2 million copies worldwide and was named one of the books of the decade by the Sunday Times. In his latest best-selling book, The Earth Transformed and Untold History, he looks at environmental history, climate and the ways it has shaped the human and natural past. The BBC has called him no less a thing than a rock star Don. I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by Peter Frankenban. Welcome aboard. Hi, Dad. Lovely to see you. And you. Now, I'm afraid I do this with every guest that we have on the Inspired Minds podcast. And I ask you, inspiration. What does inspiration mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? I think one can find inspiration in just about anything and anywhere. So I don't think I have a kind of very strong set of definitions. I can be inspired in the back of a taxi. I mean, the first thing I do when I go to a different country is I ask the taxi driver or bus driver to turn on local radio and to hear what people are listening to. And I find that as inspiring as as ordering off the menu and the first place I go to eat. So it all depends on how open-minded you are. So I guess that I suppose inspiration means being open to new impulses. And that's a difficult one because, you know, once you get to my age, I know what I like. And I don't want to try everything once. But I think being open-minded, I think, is probably what it means. And then allowing allowing yourself to get carried away and get carried down the line. I mean, that fascinates me because this is exactly you, Peter. I mean, when I think about the books that you've written, especially the most recent ones, they're kind of great sweeping descriptions of ideas and people. They're filled with anecdotes that we would have no idea about, with wonderful tidbits, which we'll come on to, as well as really massive, broad themes. So your inspiration could be something as, as little as the humble potato or something as immense as oil, coal. Would that be fair? Yeah, you know, that's partly because of my job, right? I mean, I'm, a, I'm an academic, so I, I'm supposed to be thinking and, and saying something new and original. There's no point in me regurgitating what everybody else says. But, you know, that sense of discovery is what makes me very excited. And, you know, everybody who does that knows what I'm talking about. You know, you, Dan, with your work, particularly with cricket, you know, it's you're, you're living in the moment, you're trying to describe what you see, and you're trying to put it into context. And I think that that's a real privilege, particularly if, if people say that you do it well. But you know, for example, I've been working on for on Earth Transformed, did a bit of work on mythological animals, you know, why do people come up with ideas that there are beasts which have animal heads and human bodies, or you know, dragons that can fly, which is, you know, as far as we know, don't exist in the human time frame. And you know, a lot of research into these kinds of questions, you know, some ideas are in in when you find the first kind of cave art about forty thousand years ago. Some new research came out last year from a cave in Sulawesi in what's now Indonesia. First depiction of a kind of semi-human, semi-beast creature. And the question is, where do those ideas come from? And the first thing is, is it amazing that science fiction predates anything we have as a written record? You know, that our earliest ancestors who are leaving things for us to think about in images are thinking in terms that, you know, you and I in our generation, we think science fiction is brand new, right? Rather than creative mind being let loose. You know, one idea is that maybe this is to do with low levels of oxygen in the cave that means that you reach a kind of semi-hallucinogenic state, that you're imagining things because you're conscious and you're drifting in and out of consciousness. And then when you start to think about, well, what, what other moments are there of, of semi-conscious creativity? And, you know, I can't say anything new about the Woodstock generation and about 
the uses of drugs in the 20th century. But I can tell you about how um, Vikings and Scandinavians in Russia, Russia and Ukraine, as they come down the Russian and Ukrainian river systems, start to come into contact with shamanic peoples who experiment with highly toxic mushrooms. And if you take these aspic mushrooms in small doses, they send you into a hallucinogenic state. And there's a strong idea and, and highly plausible and compelling one. The term berserker, you know, is where a, a man feels that he has the power and strength of a bear. It's because humans have ingested something that gives you these kind of out-of-body experiences. So you start to then think, well, gosh, all these things that I never thought about, no one taught me about any of that in history lessons, seem to be quite interesting, quite exciting, and perhaps even sometimes important. So I think if you're curious and you allow yourself to be inspired, it's like being allowed into the sweet shop and trying everything. And in my world in history, most people tend to head to the Henry VIII drawer or to the First World War, Second World War drawers. But there, there are plenty of other sweets on, on display. So it's true, I, I like to pick from here and there. I have a sort of magpie tendency, as I think lots of us do. You know, We all love to gather our favorite bits and pieces, but that finding things that are new and thinking, gosh, I hadn't really thought about uh, the role that psychotropic drugs play in history and in narratives and how do Vikings write about, or Scandinavian societies write about these kind of superhuman powers. And also, does it actually work? Does it make you more powerful? And if it does, should cricketers go microdose before they go and face fast bowling? You know, so there are, I think, all sorts of things in which you could apply historical lessons into the modern day as well. So it's, you know, I'm very lucky to have a kind of job that I do where I get to think about it, read about it, write about it, and, and better still, people seem to read it. That instantly makes me think of the Delphic Oracle, because did they not suggest recently that there's a kind of gas that comes between in the in the crevice between two rocks and where the oracle would have been seated, we've been ingesting these hallucinogenic gases, and that's what gave rise to these prophecies, if you like. Yeah, and it takes you back to your very first question. As a classicist, Dan, you'll know inspire. It's about what you breathe in, literally. Yes. So, you know, your inspiration comes from what you're breathing in. And if you're breathing things that are noxious and semi-dangerous, but also are interfering with your blood supply and with your oxygen supply to your brain, then, you know, not surprising, you're going to have some slightly wild ideas. And sometimes wild ideas... Uh, could be dangerous and sometimes they could be quite excited because they they inspire extra ideas of creativity so you know my closest intoxicant i have is very strong good italian coffee um but you know i'm aware that that i function much much better with a double or triple dose of espresso first thing in the morning it does something similar to me and, and i know that because for about a year i didn't drink coffee didn't have any sugar i went super healthy about 20 years ago and then the first day back on the regime, I had a single espresso and I felt like I was flying. I mean, I literally felt I was superhuman. And do you think, gosh, I'm putting that into my system every single day. But, you know, so all of us have these kinds of contributions to our, our daily life. We don't think too much about them from the humble potato to caffeine to sugars and, you know, to supply chains and food security. So, I mean, there are lots of things that you can think about, I think, if you're open-minded to not being set in tram lines of what your job is to think about as a historian. Now, what instantly I'm thinking of here is, you know, you've described new awareness, I guess, of what the Vikings and Russians, as they then become ingested into their bodies. We just discussed the Delphic Oracle. A lot of these things are around modern day technology to a degree, you know, actually going to the Delphic Oracle site and gauging what that gas is. No, nobody was doing that in the 18th, 19th century. So people just kind of assumed, didn't they, that the Greeks had other attitudes and they had all these gods and whatnot and they were a little bit crazy. Technology is massively changing the way we look at history now, isn't it? And it, it's a really important part, it seems to me, of what you've done, especially with the latest book, 
I was really, again, I suppose it's my classical brain coming in, but I was really fascinated by the detail of ice and being able to tell within the ice when the Romans stopped smelting as much metals. I mean, this must open up whole new avenues of exploration, what technology can now tell us. You're absolutely right. I'll say something about the technology, but I think the way in which we ask questions based on what we now know, it's not just about the sciences, which is it's a huge part, and I understand why it's worth talking about. But for example, things like PTSD with traumatized servicemen who've seen terrible things on the battlefield, you know, and the, the experiences that British and other servicemen have had in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on in the last 20 years, we've learned a huge amount about what happens to people who are in high stress situations and either suffer terrible injuries or have seen their friends do so or worse. And so when you when you start to read research around about that and about how do people reconnect with society, how do you readjust to regular life, you, you know, you might think, how do you then apply that to thinking about the Spartans who fought or the, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars or what happens about the Crusades? And, you know, some of the work that I do is based on the Middle Ages. And, you know, we've got lots of reports of people who come back to Europe from having fought in the Holy Wars. You know, one, the first man who's over the walls into Jerusalem in 1099 when the First Crusade captures the Holy City, comes back to Europe, about 10 years later is tried for having stabbed, he loses his arm as he goes into Jerusalem. It's, it's hacked off because if you're the first one in, you're the most risk. But he's accused a few years later of having stabbed another man through the testicles with a sharp object because he was, I presume, being mocked for having one arm. But to do that with a single arm tells you, well, you know, it's not just a, a, a you know, is that an amusing story? Is, is it intended to make him look bad or to show up his harem? Is it to say, well, what do these men feel like when they come back home? Highly male environments, highly violent, huge amounts of stress, and then readjusting. And we, you can learn lots of things from new research that's gone into different walks of life. But you're, you're right, the, the sciences are, are completely transforming history. So, I mean, you and I, our generation, and the current generation going through A-levels, tend to pick in the UK either a humanities or a science track at A-levels. That shapes your choices age 16, which, you know, my point of view is completely crazy, but, you know, there we go. That's above my pay grade. But it means that you you start to read literature or you start to work in labs and you never cross the two together. And uh, in the world of history now, that it's true every now and again, you get an Indiana Jones moment where someone finds a manuscript or you excavate a site that you weren't expecting to find amazing things. We've got lots of new technologies to do with that. I do project with CIA satellite images over Central Asia and the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Union, where we can see thermal images of where buildings were. So we know where to excavate much, much quicker, cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. But things like genetics, be able to tell how people are migrating. We have, in, for example, in Scandinavia, about 20% of the population of northern India have the same haplotype as people in Scandinavia. So it tells us about matrilineal DNA. We can see how people are moving. It doesn't solve all the problems. And in fact, in some cases, creates problems when you can ask about ethnic identities and who is connected to who. But, you know, we can decode the genome behind the Black Death, the Yersinia pestis pathogen. So you can see that on the eve of where the Black Death caught fire and killed probably half the population of Europe. Some of my colleagues set that number a bit lower. But anyway, we can see that the Yersinia pestis pathogen splits into four different branches then the question is, why did that happen? How did it happen? And why was one more virulent than three of the others? And so you can learn and think about things in completely different ways. And a lot of those materials are to do with the environment and with climate. So you mentioned ice. You can drill down into glaciers into in the Antarctic. You can look at in, in Greenland, in Switzerland. And ice traps lots of things. It traps carbon bubbles and it traps air bubbles. It traps impurities. 
And in fact, when you take out a core, it's a bit like an ice pop. You drag out a big multimeter and you, you can you can date it accurately. And as it, as it melts, you can hear these bubbles pop like Rice Krispies, but you can measure impurities. So we know, for example, after the fall of the Roman, after 410, uh, roughly when Rome is sacked or attacked by the Goths, that the level of impurities of, of metal production don't recover in Europe for about a thousand, more than a thousand years. And that tells you lots of things. I mean, the, the question I'm most interested in, in that is not, gosh, were the Dark Ages dark, or should we call them the Dark Ages? Because I'm interested in logistics. Every single piece of metal made in the Roman Empire requires a heat source. Every single piece of protein that's broken down for people to ingest requires a heat source. Every single piece of glass that's made in the Roman Empire requires a heat source. Typically, that's wood. And therefore, you might think about deforestation. You might think about what that does for rainfall patterns. You might think what that does for the price of timber. You might start to think about stepping away from Maximus, the commander of the Western armies, or whatever Russell Crowe was, and the great leaders in the corridors of power. You might think about how do supply chains work in the Mediterranean, and how do those change over time, and what are the ecologies of the Roman Empire like? And, you know, as I write about in my new book, one of the things that the Romans did was that they were very, very lucky. They weren't just good administrators and good soldiers and so on, but they had highly stable, predictable agricultural yields, because for roughly between the conquest of Egypt in 30 BC until about the 230s, about the 250-year key period, 300-year period, key Roman expansion, uh, there's climatological stability. And that means, like everybody, household budget, you know roughly what you're coming in every year, and you know roughly what your expenditure is. And where Rome goes into crisis, and we come up, this is your heartland, Dan, of uh, the, the, the reforms of Diocletian and leading up to the conversion of Constantine, Rome basically has an internal collapse. It has a cost of living crisis, it has fiscal deficits. You have every, you know, it's a, the Liz Trust version of Roman rule where you have a new emperor trying to take the throne every couple of months, often successfully, total chaos. And that's not just because of party politics or imperial politics. It's because um, if you have a crisis and you have shocks, it's very hard to adjust. And big things find adjustments harder than small things. So, you know, a good example is, you know, we've got aircraft carriers. If you have something wrong with the propeller, it doesn't leave harbour. This multi-billion floating platform. Small things can make big things go wrong quickly. And that's something I'm particularly interested in, particularly with the resonance of today's world, some of the work that I do. But so the sciences, new technologies, the way we can look at the past, it means that we can see things sort of in three dimensions compared to 20, 30 years ago, when you're really reading about the history of great men the occasional great woman. We got much better at being more inclusive, including different parts of the world. But those sciences mean that there's a real challenge for the next generation historians to be able to understand the science, to be able to look at genetics, to look at climate data, to be able to look at statistical modeling, to be able to check whether data is robust and soil samples, fossilized samples, are they have they been contaminated? Are they reliable? And just because you can find one thing in a field in central Anatolia, does it mean that you can apply those models elsewhere. So for example, as a sort of final comment, you say, for example, in the Holy Land, the Crusader States, you find a period of great drought that you might think, well, it's not very far away from other parts of the Mediterranean, but we see very high levels of rainfall in Sicily at exactly the same time where just a few hundred miles away, you have different kinds of conditions. So you then got to work out just because I can collect data from one part of the world, can I apply that even to uh, another one? And in some cases, as some of the ecological studies show, there's variation from not just from region to region, but from valley to valley. So working out how you can model upwards from complex materials and from data, you know, something that historians need to be thinking about. And that, that's a real change of, of how we educate the next generation of historians.
that instantly made me think of how climate science is really informing so much of what we know of the past, but also of, of the now. So, I mean, last year, I believe there was incredible floods in actually in Sicily and uh, in Greece as well. And it coincided with a drought further east, almost as if that is a pattern that we wouldn't really have been aware of, certainly wouldn't have been aware of 50 years ago, 60 years ago. 24 hours rain took out 20% of Greece's whole harvest last year. So the rate of that rain, I mean, we've seen it in the United Kingdom over the course of this winter, some farmers haven't collected their crops from, from last year. You know, it's so wet, there's no planting going on. And it doesn't take a, a degree in agriculture or many years working in farming to realise that that means that costs of food go up because supply gets lower. So you could, you either fix that by bringing in food from elsewhere. And even if we can do that in a, in a wealthy country like ours, that dislocates uh, food supply in other parts of the world. So in a world where we have last summer, we had in Iran soil temperatures at 80 degrees centigrade, because it's not just the, the the surface temperatures, it's soil temperatures and soil chemistry. You can see those changes are are hugely dramatic. You know, wind speeds in New Zealand above 200 kilometers an hour. Last year, there were 23 $1 billion damage events in the United States by extreme weather conditions. And that has an impact, we don't think about it, but that has an impact on how much insurance you pay for your car here in, in Oxford or in the United Kingdom, because insurance industry covers lots of different things. So what happens in one part of the world it's connected to another one, but but we don't tend to think in that expansive way because we focus on our, on our own existences and don't connect ourselves to these big patterns, which is why climate mitigation, green policies are so hard for us all to understand because we all love the principle, but actually find it difficult to relate to what that means to us on an individual level. But you know, it's pretty clear what's already happening and what's coming towards us. And it's something that isn't new, is it? In your book, The Earth Transformed, there's a section on the Akkadian Empire that was probably not known about a huge amount, but was a large and stable empire for quite some time. And then it collapses, and it collapses, uh, you posit, it seems perfectly reasonable, uh, through climate change. So climate change isn't something that is unique to the last 40, 50 years caused by the Industrial Revolution and massive globalization. This is something that's affected empires in the past. Sure. Global weather systems are extremely complicated. They are connected to a whole set of different climate signals. And the most important of one is the El Nino, La Nina signal, which uh, has a whole set of implications that are global. But there are lots of other systems that sit below that too. There are uh, The eccentricity of the Earth's orbit plays a role, the behavior of the sun and solar activity, volcanic eruptions. There are all sorts of reasons why there, there are changes. Uh, but what's interesting to me, I mean, of course, the, the big difference today is that those natural oscillations and shifts we are we are dramatically impacting through our, our our own emissions and our own consumption patterns i mean that's that doesn't seem to me a controversial thing to say whether we can adapt to it in time and cope with it and what the consequences are that's a different question i think but what's highly unusual is first that we are responsible for these changes today locking into existing changes but also the speed of the accelerations i think that's the real challenge the speed of of change but what is interesting when you go back into the for example, the curse of Akkad, when you said strong and stable, I immediately think of Theresa May, but one of the rulers of, of Akkad was a kind of Donald Trump type figure who you know, erected statues of himself and inscriptions to talk about how, how great he was, how he was going to make Akkad great again. And the curse of Akkad from, was, was meted down on, on his, his son Naramsin, who was thought to be too proud and didn't pay reverence to the gods and therefore was punished with extreme drought, food shortages, famine and things that flowed. 
in fact, it wasn't quite as bad as that because Naramsin manages to rebuild Akkad okay. But why those things are written down is to warn that, that climate anomalies and shocks can be very dangerous. And so, you know, for example, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat or the story of Joseph warning Pharaoh that in the seven years of plenty, you need to make sure you put aside for the seven years of fallow that follow. You know, no one else did that. Pharaoh thought he was crazy. Everyone around Pharaoh thought he was crazy. And the, the, the story was, you know, well, you can survive with one year that's bad, but if you have multi-year failure, then there are real problems. And those stories were written down in the Bible or in the Torah, etc., not just to say, well, look, here's some great material for an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical one day. They're written down to say, you need to be prepared that good times can suddenly turn overnight into bad times. And, you know, you and I are old enough, Dan, to know that that's happened multiple times in our lives. You know, the financial crisis, when I came out of university, in the early 90s, then the 98, the blow up, the financial setback built the Russia that we have today because Russia was overexposed, all the industries in the wrong place at the wrong time. And as a result of 98, put all the Russian manufacturing industry into the hands of 20 plus oligarchs that created the Russia that we have since. You know, the global financial crisis of 2008, the implications of all of that in terms of austerity, in terms of inequalities, not just in the United Kingdom, but globally, have been huge. And then COVID likewise. So we've been through it multiple times. And what four massive chronic global crises in our life, economic crises. So, you know, that should tell you that these things, they come around for different reasons, you know, over-exuberance, badly regulated banks, a bat in Wuhan and pathogens. But these things, they, they happen and you need to make sure that you're prepared. So the, the question is, you know, there's some of the discussions I'm involved in here in the UK, in the UK is, you know, what, what do those shocks look like? And what level of preparation do you need? Which, which ones are the things that are shadows that never come towards you? But th those fears and anxieties around what does the natural world, how does it change, you know, me means that we, we should be paying a lot more attention to that than we have been doing. You've described a whole bunch of shocks there that have happened in our, I've got to say, rel still relatively short lifetime. And that seems to me to be part of the problem. There are so many more moving parts. The population of the world is so much larger. There's so much more interconnectedness. And there's so much more information. Does that make it psychologically incredibly difficult for human beings to deal with these problems? Because they happen in this horrible cascading way. There's almost a sort of crisis fatigue in a way. I, mean, I can't think, obviously, every period of history, every, nobody lives their entire life if they live a 70, 80 years without existing during a period of a war or a famine or a plague of some kind. But you're describing these coming so rapidly one after the other that it, it almost begs the question, is it too much for us to handle all in one go? Well, you know, the shocks of the last you know, 30, 40 years, you know, there've been lots of, I guess, positive shocks. The fall of the Berlin Wall, China's growth, you know, its economy's got up 15, maybe 16 times in the last 20 years. That has had, that's been great. I mean, it's it, made China into a competitor, a challenge, an opportunity, etc. Obviously, there's a whole different question around that. But it's also meant that all of our laptops and mobile phones have been cheaper and, than they would have been if they made anywhere else. And that, I suppose, you could think of as a democratizing process for us in the West. And ironically, it's had probably the opposite effect in, in China, where the places these are manufactured. So is it too big a problem to understand? You know, my view is probably we shouldn't be educating kids in the way that they were taught in the 19th century, which is how we do things, where you teach children how to multiply fractions and and speak really bad French with 10 years worth of investment. Probably as a child, you should learn how to be able to wire a plug, grow carrots, skin a rabbit, 
you know, or, or be able to, you know, use a pencil and paper to book hotel rooms rather than rely on computer systems. And I think if you if you don't adapt your education system to complexity, in the United Kingdom, because I've been involved in some of this, currently we have less than a thousand students combined combined studying Arabic, Chinese, Russian, Farsi, Thai, Khmer, Korean, Japanese. Most of these languages shut down at universities. So you know when you find yourself in a world where you've got a shifting Middle East, you've got Russia. All the inter- intelligence assessments released last week by the Estonian government that you know an inbound attack on NATO countries on Estonia within the next decade is highly likely. China that is, like I said, opportunity and challenge, whichever, or maybe both. The expertise, it's absolutely wafer thin. And I can promise you, because I work in these parts of the world, everybody, if you if you turn up on a street corner in Shanghai, or I mean, I can't go to Moscow anymore, but all the Gulf, and you say, tell me something about Britain, every single person will talk about football, quite a lot will be able to talk about cricket. And they'll know about film stars, pop stars, or whatever. But you know, I did something yesterday in one one of the departments in in Whitehall, and I had the brightest and the best. And I said, "Can anybody name for me a Chinese film star, or an Arabic pop star, or a contemporary novelist working in Russia, in Russian, in in you know, in any in any of these countries, Vietnam, on the move?" And if you can't, then are we out of position? And then push that through into West Africa, North Africa, South America, which doesn't hear hit in the news ever. Then. You know, our engagement with the rest of the world is pretty limited. So I think that starts with what do you teach young people when they're six, seven, eight? That goes through to thinking what kind of skills should they have? And, you know, one of the questions we're asking universities is what what you should we make of technology? Should we allow students to use big language models and GPUs and things like chat GPT? Or do we try and pretend that these aren't happening, tell students they've got to do it the hard way because that's how we did it? That failure to adapt means that you don't understand what those challenges and opportunities are. As you say, big supply chains mean that we're all hyper-exposed. Things that are big are much more fragile than things that are small, because when something goes wrong, the whole thing goes wrong. So, I mean, one of the examples I often use about that is that, you know, the Space Shuttle Challenger that blew up when I was, when we were at school, uh, that was caused by an O-ring that cost 50 cents failing. So, you know, that set back the whole of the NASA space program, you know, that I suppose underpins the wealth that Elon Musk has that comes out of SpaceX because the privatization of the space program into private hands has meant that Musk has unlimited wealth that has allowed him to buy social media platforms that in, in turn are help you know create friction between democratic systems that are real point of weakness in this year, which is the year which has the world's highest number of people going to the polls anywhere on earth uh, in, in any time in history. So all these things flow into the fact that you know a single thing failed. And I think I think it was John Glenn, the astronaut, was asked, you know, what do you think about when you're on the launch pad in the 1960s on the Mercury program? You know, do you think about your parents? Do you think about God? Do you think about what you're doing for mankind? He went, I'm thinking every single piece of this aircraft has been given to the lowest possible tender, right? So when things go wrong, small things go wrong, when you're traveling at speed, it's a real problem. And right now we're hurtling down the motorway at 90 miles an hour plus, and most of us can see there's traffic ahead of us and we should probably be applying the brakes a little bit faster than we are. But it doesn't seem to me that enough people are sort of adjusting for what comes towards us. A decade, as Kevin Rudd calls it, the former Prime Minister of Australia, decade of living dangerously and you know, possibly worse than that. Um, but you know, I'm a historian, so what do I I'm a, I'm a catastrophist because we study plagues, disasters, pandemics, wars, and so on. But you know, as it so happens, when I was in Downing Street in December 2019, was asked about the next 10 years. I said, it's all pandemics. It's all PPE, syringes, stocks, who closes airspace, who closes schools. And, you know, lo and behold, two weeks later, 
uh, Wuhan told Beijing there was a problem. So, you know, if you if you are thinking about what might go wrong, um, like Benjamin Franklin says, you know, if you if you if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. So in that hyper connected world that you talk about, Dan, absolutely right, then those those failure points are extremely numerous and understanding where they are and how to mitigate uh, is is quite important. I want to go back to something that, well, the thing that really shocked me. You said there are a thousand students in Britain effectively studying Eastern languages and, and understanding what we'd understand to be Eastern countries, cultures. It strikes me that this would be a very different proportion 250, 300 years ago. Well, Britain was developing an empire, was a seafaring nation. I imagine the, the population, the percentage of the population that would have had direct contact with other parts of the world would have been so much more than it is now. Is this a peculiarly Western failure? Because one of the themes of the Silk Roads is that there's a whole bunch of people who for centuries had been trading and getting on and um, exchanging cultures, having fluid religions. Um, I mean, I'm sort of fascinated by the Sogdians, who appear to be a very unbellicose group of people who, who were trading like crazy. And one minute, they appear to be you know, having one form of religious right and then another. Uh, there's a great deal of flexibility there. There's a great deal of mutual understanding that's happening in a, a large part of the world that, for the sake of argument, let's call Central Asia and out further to the West and then sort of branching downwards towards the Mediterranean. The picture you're painting of a West now is that while the theatre of influence and is, is shifting to China, and it's very clear that it is and, and, and to the far, further East, the West is completely unprepared because it doesn't have any of those interconnected arteries that help them even appreciate what's going on. Well, look, yeah. So you're, you're, you know, it's a good, it's a good point. I think 150 years ago, we were much more engaged in other parts of the world. I mean, the people studying those languages at the time. I remember, my, you know, when our, our kids all complained about doing French homework or Latin homework, they were lucky to go to school where they learnt Latin. Uh, you know, I'd tell them at Haleybury. Wednesday evening homework was translating Persian into Sanskrit. So stop complaining. You know that's a little bit harder than than getting the accusative case in, of, of Puella right. Um, but you know they'd all have been men, and they'd have all have been wealthy men. And today we're more inclusive, we're more diverse, and so on. So you know there are some wins in there. At the beginning of your question, I, I was would have pushed back a bit more and said, you know, we are a global city here in London. You know we're pretty good at being uh, the Salkians of the modern world. And, welcoming everybody. I mean, there's a bit of hard grain in some of that now with, with some of the discussions around migrations and so on. But, you know, we're hugely welcoming. We're hugely non-judgmental. You know, we're very good at, at encouraging lots of forms of assimilation. I know often politicians tell us that we're not, but, you know, we we are great at that. You know, look at the diversities of, of all of our sports teams, for example. So, you know, there are, there are lots of lots of things to be proud about, about how we engage with other parts of the world. And, you know, we are still a global power. We have a seat on the Security Council. We've got nuclear capabilities and you know we are we are an important global economy and so we we do there are lots of things we do really well you know universities like mine consistently ranked if not the top one of the top universities in the world with incredible research goals so there's lots of things in the positive column but yeah you're right we're disengaged with other parts of the world and it's not it's not just china on the on the rise in fact china's got its own structural issues right now but the rate of growth of change in india you know, for example, in the last six years, Indian uses of data have gone up by 100 times, right? So people are much more connected from quite a low starting point. But the investments in railways, investments in roads, investments in flushing toilets, the transformations of India are huge. And, you know, again, the worlds that you work in, in, in sport, Dan, 
the best football team in the world at the moment, pains me to say it as a Chelsea fan, uh, is Manchester City, which is owned by Abu Dhabi, essentially ruling family. Saudi Arabia have invested not just in football, but into lots of different sports. Saudi improbably and inconceivably in three years' time are holding the Asian Winter Games. Saudi Arabia doesn't have a single river, not a single lake, but is going to build luge runs and curling rinks and ice skating arenas and tobogganing and uh, and you know mogul slopes. If you produce nine million barrels of oil per day, and you spend, well, in fact, Saudi's case, they spend about three quarters of a million barrels per day on air conditioning alone. Perhaps you've got the capability to live in the way that British did when the Brits were very wealthy, of building follies and enormous country houses and you know remodeling landscapes. You know this is what happens if you've got uh, vast wealth, and, and so it's not just. China, it's places like Indonesia, places like the Philippines, places that almost never make it into the news. You know, but if you just take Philippines, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan together, you're hitting around about a billion people. And that's that's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of internet devices to sell. That's a lot of education needs. That's a lot of young people, these very young countries, young populations looking for role models, inspiration, and people who will help them understand the world around them. And I suppose I've been mean, I'd be very lucky that my you know I, because of my books have I get to travel and to talk to people in these parts of the world. But their their vision of what the future holds is a hugely positive one that tomorrow is going to be better than today, and you're very hard pushed to find people in Europe or the US who think the same way. And and maybe that's based on fundamentals. Maybe we are in a really really difficult spot. But when you start to talk yourself down and say we've got to make Britain great again or America great again, we're all going to hell in a handcart then that fuels, a, I think, a much more poisonous type of politics, but also it, it fuels much shorter term thinking because you're not investing for the long term. You're investing for short returns and you're, you're trying to save yourself. And and I think that that can influence all sorts of different things in, in quite negative ways. So are we, are we uh, adapting to that world? You know, in some ways, yes, but in lots and lots of ways, no. So I mean, again, my world, we have 93% of history faculties in the UK work on the history of the West. And you know, that seems to be unforgivable in the global world. But you know, Nigeria has 250 million people, give or take, at the moment. By the end of the century, projected to have 750 million people, and that's you know, opportunity to challenge both ways. But we should be thinking about what does that mean for us, and what does it mean for Nigeria? How how do, how do we help? How do we stay away? What are the problems? What are the challenges? But yeah, we're too comfortable sitting here waiting for people to come to London, buying real estate enjoying the great things at our city and it is particularly london you know the huge inequalities between cities in the uk is a real issue but you know i think we've got to work out are we going to become the kind of venice of today where it's a great place to walk around in the same way you you know you and i walk around venice you go why did anybody think building a palace on a canal in a sinking city would be a good idea i suspect that that's what people already walk around notting hill gate and go who would pay 40 million quid for this in a city where it's just filled with other people buying expensive houses, all the lights are off all the time because no one lives here. It's just somewhere you'd like to spend a few weeks because you can afford to have a massive house in, in central London. So those kinds of processes of global change, I think we haven't woken up to. And again, it, always back to the same thing about how do we educate, how do we think in a different world? And because you're a classicist, Dan, you know that the Greeks knew that their opportunities and challenges didn't come from the south of France or from Tuscany or from Spain. All the Greek world is looking east it's all about the Persians. It's all about opportunities. You know, and I've said that in a few of my Silk Rose lectures. You know, Alexander the Great didn't want to go to Berlin or London. He wants to go as far as the Hindu Kush. You know, he wanted to reach Central Asia. 
you know, he founded cities like Samarkand, Kandahar, Herat, all named Trump like immodestly after himself. But, you know, that was always where those crucibles were because it's about, you know, ultimately history is about simple things like demographics. If you've got large populations, those are large markets. Those represent risks and threats and challenges and vulnerabilities. But 65% of the world's population live east of Istanbul. And the decisions that get made by all these people in their luxury goods, sports, interests, recycling, keep doing it if you live in Oxford. But, you know, it's the big cities in Asia that where the fate of the world's climate and climate change are going to be shaped. So I think that we we are we're disengaged. We become we become lazy and self-satisfied thinking that people are going to come to us and that we can sit and wait. And, and that's a bad place to be. There's so much to unpack there. and We're running out of time. But I want to pick up on, on population increase for a start. I mean, that's an incredible thing that at the time of partition, 1947, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the population about 300 million. That's now somewhere around about 1.8 billion, which is in large part, I'm sure, fueled by improved agrarian processes, by vaccinations, by far better health care. Maternal health care. Yep. You've already mentioned the size of Nigeria, the, the size of the population of China. It strikes me as amazing that the West has slept, walked into this position. And it also strikes me that we were talking earlier about what inspires you. And I've heard you described as, a, a, well, not a Cassandra, but you know, reading the earth transformed, it's it's a tough read because it's, you know, it doesn't paint a pretty picture. I hear something very different coming from you, Peter. I don't know who you've been talking to. I mean, it's true. My, my final line is a little bit negative. I say, you know, if you're a historian, you wouldn't bet <laughs> the fact that we're going to end up in peace and happiness. You know, history is all about warfare, breakdown, instability, fracture, and crisis. So, I mean, that that's what history teaches you. People fight. They do kill each other. They do persecute and so on. So, um, but yeah, go on. But yeah, the Cassandra... Yeah, I'm slightly sensitive about that. Yeah, but just, just to finish off on that, I think it's an unfair characterization because talking to you, what I hear is a lot of positivity about an area of the world that perhaps has been neglected by Western historians. So, you know, there's a lot of fear of Xi Jinping and China and the, the initiatives they have to bring in, what is it, 80 countries are part of the China Belt and Road Plan, um, 63% of the world's population within that, 29% of global economic output. And rather than being scared of what those processes are, I mean, I think you, you've written yourself, haven't you, that China has never had an empire, that might it be possible that these things are actually going to have beneficial effects, whereas the sort of knee-jerk reaction in the West is to see that as a threat, as if almost anything that comes from the East is a threat. And if that is the case, what do you put that down to psychologically? I mean, it's not just Genghis Khan and marauding hordes, is it? I think there's some of that. I think that China has had has had an empire, arguably is an empire. You know, the colonization of Xinjiang, Tibet, Mongolia. You know, I think you're hard pushed to say that that China's always kept within sort of some boundaries that are sacred. You know, China, like everything, as it has its territories shifted. So, I think going back to the classical world, the way in which the East was always characterized as a place of lazy indulgence, where people didn't have to work for a living, and all the fruits, all the spices, all the wealth came easily, and that you know you had to work hard if you were Greek. You need to leave babies on the side of mountains to toughen them up. You need to develop hoplite armor and, and train, and you need to learn for the sake of being ready for warfare. So I think that those tropes about about the East are, are deep in our cultures and histories. They were accentuated, and you know, like I wrote about my my new book by Voltaire, Montesquieu, and so on. And you know, that's that's not for me to say that that's good or bad. That's just how it was, you know. Um, but but I think that in that changing world, you know, when it comes to things like population, I think it's about trying to work out 
what does it all mean for us? And uh, where are there threats and risks? How do we work with other countries and with people who are not like us? In the last 10 years, every single year, the world has become measurably less free across every single metric, across freedom of the press, across religion, across democratic rights, and so on. As a child of the Cold War, both you and I, you know, the values of democracy, of freedoms, and so on, you know, we all protect very closely. But the examples that we've set in the West with Trump, with the merry-go-round in government here in the UK, with you know the problems we've had all over the world in democratic systems, you can see why other people look at us and go, why would the earth want to behave like you lot? And in fact, now when we have the new technologies where you know, the ability to influence elections through technologies and through new platforms that, that can create instabilities get used against us all. So even the ways in w- what our political systems mean, we need to really be reminding young people what the benefits are. You know, we've had Tucker Carlson in Moscow for the last two weeks saying, isn't the Russian model a really great one where no mention of the fact that people get carted off in the middle of the night or leading dissidents being found dead in their prison uh, with no explanation, their bodies not being uh, release of their families with Alexei Navalny this week. So, you know, I think there are there are all sorts of ways in which we are not just not keeping up with what's happening in other parts of the world. We're not recognizing what our own challenges and problems are. And, and that's fundamentally to do with how governments regulate big businesses, not just in fossils and oil and clean technologies, but with, with new tech too. And, you know, I'm not quite sure what the answer is uh, with things like AI and with deep fakes. But, you know, that is coming towards us extremely quickly. And those pose really serious national security challenges for us all. Because the way we now believe that what freedom of speech means, it means that anybody should be allowed to say anything at any time about anything in any way they want, rather than what, what we were brought up on, which is free speech means you should be decent to people and treat people with equality and treat people with respect. And I think we're sort of slightly lost here around what those discussions should look like in our political spectrums. And a lot is going to depend on results of elections that take place this year, obviously, most importantly, the United States. But, you know, there's a big election in India. I don't think there's too much doubt about how that way is going to go. But, you know, we've got an election here in, in the UK, probably before the end of the year, might stretch to next year. But but these are seminal moments, I think, for letting new ideas come through. And those new ideas have got to be progressive ones. They've got to be ones that bring more people along with them. You know, I can't see many places in Europe today, for example, where you see real vision, where you see a sort of uh, optimistic, hopeful way of saying, we're going to make our country better, not great again, but how we're going to improve things. You know, hopefully universities like mine could be part of the solution in terms of new technologies and so on. But, you know, that that's, it takes me back to languages. You know, we, we charge our students a fortune to come and study in the UK from UK backgrounds. You know, so uh, we, we have students who leave debts in most cases, double what debts are in the United States at educational level. So if you're taxing education, making it a luxury, then it's perhaps not surprising that, that you end up with a slightly ossified society where everyone's just trying to become richer for themselves rather than thinking about the common good. Peter, I'm going to let you go. It's been absolutely fascinating. Read Peter's Silk Roads book and, and the sequel, as well as Earth, The Untold Story. It's a terrific read. I don't think it's all gloom and doom at all. I, I see inspiration in what you say and the inspiration is to stop thinking in the travelled lines of Western Europe and to embrace cultures from further afield Peter thank you so much for joining us thanks so much Dan you've been listening to the latest episode of the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series with me Daniel Norcross and my fabulous guest Peter Frankopan you can listen to previous episodes of the series on all major podcast platforms and if you enjoyed listening don't forget to like or subscribe 
To find out more about the series, just go to rathbones.com. The Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series, now available on all podcast platforms and at rathbones.com.